Hello, Hoopaholics, and welcome to the Box and One podcast. I'm Coach Spins here. Really thrilled to be joined today by CJ Marchesani from The Stepian, great draft analyst. He's involved in a ton of different projects. You can find him pretty much anywhere doing anything on any different day, but uh, a lot of great takes. I know as we were we're talking before getting on here recording, maybe some philosophical differences or areas that we're going to try to challenge each other in, and our focus tonight is going to be on turning the page towards this 2022 NBA draft class. But CJ, thrilled to have you on. How are you doing this evening? I'm doing great. I appreciate you having me on. I'm excited to uh, get going. Yeah, we're, we, uh, we can dive into the weeds really deeply on a lot of these guys on a lot of different issues. But as we start off our podcast with every single guest, the main question that we have to ask them first and foremost, CJ, you're up three with five seconds to go, and it's the other team's ball. Do you foul? What do you what do you tell your team to do? Uh, man, see, I would love to come up here all brave and tell you that I would I would just play basketball, play good defense, and let it ride. But I think I would probably foul. I think the smart thing to do is foul. I yell at coaches when they don't foul. Um, I would like to think I'd be brave enough to challenge it, but push comes to shove, and my job is on the line. I'd probably foul. Yeah, yeah, I I think that that's. A lot of the answers that we've had on this podcast have geared towards that territory. We have had, this is episode six now, uh, we've had five fouls and one play it out with the asterisk of, uh, and it was Adam Maris from uh, DNVR Sports, said that he thinks that the rule changes are going to catch up with it in, in the future where fouling when you're up three isn't necessarily going to be at, at play anymore, which who knows how, how rules committees and things are going to change. But the rules changes thus far in the NBA seem to have worked pretty well. It's a much cleaner product this year. Yeah, no, the it, the game is nicer to watch. I think the next couple steps are really getting rid of the rest of the stuff that we don't think of as basketball plays. Those Euro transition fouls are killer. And honestly, anytime you're winning by fouling, take it out of the game. I think the more free-flowing basketball that we have, the better it is to watch. And the stuff that they've done this year has been great. Yeah, couldn't agree more on that, friend. So, CJ, how many drafts have you been a part of covering or analyzing now? What what year, uh, going into 2022 draft, what year number is this for you? I would say this will be entering three seriously. Uh, before that, I paid attention to it, was all the way in, in my own analysis. But I think my public work probably started two years ago, and this will be going into year three. Okay, so we're roughly around the same because I, I did all my own little things on the box and one for a while, but then started covering it. This is year four for me going into heavy draft coverage. So around that same token, I think that we're both in a position where we're starting to get a better feel for ourselves philosophically on what were some of those initial sticking points that we saw and found that do translate to the NBA that don't. How is the game evolving? Like, And what I appreciate about your work is you're very introspective in those ways where you have those philosophical discussions and are one of those guys that's willing to raise his hand and say, hey, this is where I might not have hit on in the past and, and just to try to learn from it. So as we turn the page here to 2022 and looking at this draft class, I think that that's one thing for our listeners and viewers to really be aware of is that this is going to be as much of an introspective conversation about us learning from ourselves, from each other, from what we've seen play out over the last few years and how it translates to what we are seeing or are hoping to see from some of the top names in a 2022 class. So as we start this off, the, the guys that have been playing thus far are the international prospects, those that have been playing in Europe. And I think there are a few names that are floated around as potential first round or higher guys. Uh, first off, you know, Roko Prakacin, who declared for the draft initially last year, ended up withdrawing later on in that process. I had a mid first round grade on him last year, and I know I'll go into to him in a little bit. What are your initial thoughts on Roka? Yeah, I, I think I was around that spot. I think he ended up mid lottery for me. Um, I don't remember exactly if it was 11, 12, 13, but somewhere in that range. And it kind of hits on one of those broad overarching philosophy things that you were kind of hinting at, which is not necessarily youth, but production at a young age. I think people can get wrapped up in the youth thing and draft a young player, draft a young player. It doesn't matter how young you are. You know, there's no real correlation to that. But if you are productive against older guys like Roko was and like some of the guys we saw in the past draft were, I think that that's a really nice data point in your favor. Kind of how NFL analysts use breakout age in college. 
Like, were, were you good as a receiver as a freshman and sophomore, or did it wait until maybe your junior or senior to really burst on the scene? And I think from a breakout age point of view, Rocco is a guy that I'm going to continue to have my eye on. He opened up my board in kind of that same spot, uh, mid lottery. Yep. Yeah. I think right now open in the 2022 spot, he's 15th for me. So right in that kind of late lottery chalk in the middle of the first round area. I like a lot about Rocco's game. I think he's a really good passer. He's a, a mismatch kind of Jack of all trades, master of none type of offensive threat. I've been impressed thus far in his defensive aptitude, how strong he is positionally, his willingness to rebound and therefore rebound and run, push the break a little bit. I think he's really good in transition in a lot of ways, but I still don't know how he impacts the game when surrounded by NBA quality scoring talent. I think right now on the team that he's playing on, he's more of the linchpin of that as this versatile piece that no matter what the matchup is, they can play through him. You know, he's a, a face-up creator who can attack closeouts about as well as anybody in this draft class from what I can tell right now. He's also a mismatch post-up threat. Is very comfortable taking smaller guys, playing with his back to the basket, and not just scoring out of there. He's a really good creator out of the low post area. Having both abilities makes you a really versatile forward in today's game, but he's not a create-his-own-shot type of guy off the bounce, I don't think. His, his shot is a little bit inconsistent from three to be an off-ball threat, and he's had flashes of pick-and-roll creation, but it hasn't been incredibly consistent. So I always struggle to figure out what his offensive role is going to be other than just as a connector piece. So a, a lot there, but I don't know if, if you agree with some of those takeaways, if you see him a little bit differently, and then just what your thought in general is on how to draft connector pieces. No, I think you're, I think you're spot on. And I think connector piece is a really good way to look at it. I will say that he caught some um, Franz Wagner comparisons, even in last year's class. They're very similar players. Um, Franz had a much better shooting profile. I was much more confident that he would shoot than Rocco, which is a little bit of the difference in ranking for me for, between the two guys. But that being said, I do think that there's a place in the league for that kind of player. And especially in this draft class where I'm sure we're going to dig deeper into it later on. A vast majority of the guys at the top of this class are create their own shot, shooter, have the ball in their hand type guys, you know, secondary creators, ISO guys, that kind of thing. And Rocco is going to be kind of the opposite, the other end of the coin. And I think that those players are necessary. I will always bet on high IQ wings that can defend. It's, it's an archetype that I like, especially guys that I think have shooting equity down the line. I don't think he's going to be that same Franz-level shooter um, because he doesn't have that background. But I think he is going to be a viable shooter in the NBA. And more so than that, the fact that he is as productive as he is in the league at such a young age makes me think that maybe there's more there. Kind of how it, it really is just a thread of mine that if you're productive at a young age, I kind of give you a little bit more leeway to think that you may have find stuff to build on and take the stuff that you're productive at now and use that as building blocks to up your game down the line. None of these guys are finished products. And I think he may have some of that in him, but even if he doesn't, I think, um, I think he'll be a very valuable in that connector rotation wing piece at the NBA. I think he's probably not a star guy, but you don't necessarily need to be a star guy to return value on the pick in that area. Yeah, and, and I think where, where I'm currently struggling after seeing Wagner have a great start to his career and a couple other of these quote-unquote connector pieces, glue guys that have come in and made positive impacts early in their career and, and have all the makings of being a, a lifelong rotation player for their careers, I struggle with where to put them on draft boards because I think you when you have a high pick, you want to draft for star potential because – it, quite frankly, there's no other way of getting one of those, especially if you're a struggling small market team. You have to take those swings. But at what point do you try to go for that really safe pick that you know is just going to be a great guy on your roster? I'm sure situationally it has to change. It's not going to be one size fits all where, hey, at the 12th pick in the draft, this is where it needs to go. But I think that we're starting to see a climb in that direction of a lot of these really solid, solid guys, no matter whether they're younger or might be even a little bit older in a guy like Davion Mitchell, who are just starting to, to move that in a different direction where they're going to be considered earlier in the draft than they have been the last five or six. 
Yeah, and I think that makes sense. One thing I would caution on there would be a point that I kind of harped on with the Franz thing last year in that a high floor young player, right? So a young player that you feel has a really strong floor usually means they're, they're good. They're already good at basketball. You don't have to do very much projecting to put them in a good role. And I think just by the nature of being a athletic, good basketball player at the age of 19 gives you the possibility that you're one of those false ceiling prospects. I think the NBA scouts, us, everybody, um, has a difficult time projecting upside. I think it's a difficult thing to quantify. I know I'm not very good at it. Um, I think the NBA really isn't very good at it. And I think one way to take those upside swings and maybe have them be a little bit watered down is to take that quality young basketball player where maybe he's not Chris Duarte or Davion Mitchell, but he is still safe because you know he's already good, but he's also young. So he has a little bit of that shiny new toy mystery box feel and can develop skills down the road that maybe some of those other guys don't have avenues to. And that to me describes Prakachin in a nutshell. That's the, the appeal of drafting him and why I think he continues to stick around in that late lottery, mid first round range for me. Um, you know, one of the other international names that has been brought up a lot in this pre-draft process and certainly has his fans and believers out there who think that he's a, a top five and, and potentially even top three type of pick is, is Yannick Zosa. Uh, I, I don't know where you weigh in on him. I'm curious to hear your thoughts, but a really different type of prospect for kind of a younger big man coming internationally. What is it that you've seen from Zosa thus far? Um, I think, first of all, he is wrong, right? He's... I think he's been playing basketball for four years. He's very new to basketball. And just the fact that he picked up a basketball four or five years ago and is on this stage where we're talking about him as a possible lottery pick is a testament to him and to the raw talent that he does have. I think there, there are, of course, some issues. He basically only has a left hand. He has a very soft touch around the rim with that left hand. Um, kind of gives you hope that he can develop more there but he's not much of an offensive threat besides a rim runner and mixing in a couple flashy soft touch finishes. He's a very good rim protector, despite the fact that he's wildly skinny and won't match up very well at the next level uh, with some of the bigger bodies. I think he's probably closer to a development project. He's not in my top five or seven or anything like that, but I think from your tone, I'm probably a bit higher on him than you are just because Again, the development curve of a guy that hasn't been playing basketball very long and has played himself onto this uh, the, the platform that we're talking about now. No one has really handed him that. It's that raw tools and the ability for a guy at 6'11 to move the way he does. It's unnerving to see. Like Guys aren't supposed to move like that at that size. Yep. So I'm intrigued. Um, I think as this season progresses, if you start to see that real skill development for him, it's going to be like a light bulb kind of thing where like, oh, he's still growing. Like he's very much still growing. Mm -hmm. And without that, it'll probably be difficult to waste a top 10 pick on him. But if you do start to see that, like him building block things one step at a time throughout the year, I think he's going to be a quick riser up draft boards and probably up my own draft board. Yeah, I think that's a, a good summation of where things are. And you do a nice job of talking about the pros of, of a guy like him. Like he's still 17. He, he's going to turn 18 in, in a couple of weeks. Uh, one of the younger guys in this draft class, freak athlete and, and ability to move both on the perimeter and, and in space for somebody his size. Um, the offense is not there. The, the defense to me is not as, as elite as a lot of people um, have him pointed out to be right now. Now, some of that is youth and inexperience, which you talked about, not necessarily a reason not to draft somebody, but I keep hearing the word prodigy kind of thrown around with him sometimes on the defensive end, and that's not something I see. I don't think he has the innate feel or understanding of the game of basketball. There are times when he's positioned in drop coverage trying to you know, split the difference between ball handlers and his rolling man that he's just kind of there guarding neither, and that comes with time. You know, those are areas that players end up being being taught and, and ingrained into their movements in order to make it at the NBA level. But I don't think it's a, a prodigal type of defensive aptitude right now. I think Usman Garuba is probably the closest thing that, that I've seen the last few years 
to an international big man who has such a high IQ motor and versatility to him that he would be that, that type of prospect right away. But the offense is, is really, really raw. Like he's shooting 31% from the field in his first 11 games of the season right now. And for a guy who almost all of his shots come on the interior, it's, it's an alarming number for me right now. Um, there's a certain skill level that I think just NBA players have, but people don't realize how good NBA big men who never shoot a three in games are in just a standstill setting. They could all go during warmups and probably make 25, 33s out of 50. These guys are so tremendously skilled. And, and I don't see that right now from Zosa with his comfort level, with his feel. There were a couple of times he had to put the ball on the floor because he just got caught with it in a tough situation, trying to bring it across half court a couple of weeks ago. And so unnatural, just trying to take two bounces with it. So there's a lot that he just doesn't have right now that puts me in a comfortable position, even though I see all the upside that you talk about, the defensive ability and all those things. Part of it for me is I think the game is going to slowly start trending away from big men who are solely rim protectors. And there's so much mentally that comes with being able to be a great rim protector while also switching, while also guarding multiple positions. And when you use the word raw with a guy like that, I'm not sure what he's great at right now. And it's hard for me to envision where to start on his development process. So there, for, there's a lot of reasons why I think time is what I would need to talk me into Zosa. But at this point in time, I have him more as a, a late first guy than anything too much higher. I think that's fair. And I think Garuba is a good guy to bring up just as a natural comparison because his film kind of pops off the screen as he knows what's happening on the defensive end before the offense does. He has such good, good pattern recognition that he's already there and he's reading two steps ahead. Sosa doesn't have that. It, it's very clear. He hasn't played enough bad basketball. He doesn't have that same feel. But what he does have is like three steps and a race of play. And he, he misses the next three. Like if, if we're being honest, like he'll, he'll miss stuff. He'll completely space out. He'll be thinking he's doing the right thing and being in the wrong spot. But then three plays later, you see that like just ridiculous movement skills, quite honestly, for a guy that size. And you start to like, I, I can see coaches talking themselves into like, if I could just get this guy so much more playing time with, with all that stuff. And not that many guys have those tools. So I'm going to stay intrigued. Um, it's going to come down to the film at the end of the year. I think at the point where he's at, you can tell how much he can see as a basketball player, right? He, he's very obvious about when he's getting it and when he's not getting it. And if, if he's progressing and you're seeing him on that learning curve, like the light bulb's coming on, he's starting to get it. It's going to be easier to project those raw skills into like this might fit in an offense, but as you said, and I'm a guy that values skill quite highly. He doesn't have very much skill really at all. And I think it's fair to be skeptical. I am, um, I'm an optimistic guy from the start. So I'm going to be cautiously optimistic on him. But if the skill and the progression doesn't come along, I think there will definitely be a point of time where the skill is more important to me than the raw physical talent that he has. For sure. No, that's, I think that's fair. And two very different prospects to talk about at the start, right? With a guy like Rocco, who's just very, very solid, high floor type of player. And then guy like Zosa with an incredibly high ceiling defensively, still not sure what to make of the floor or the offensive aptitude and how that package kind of translates. But one other international guy that I wanted to bring up, and then I'll, I'll see if there's any others that are on your radar right now is Nikola Jovic uh, playing right now with mega. I, I had so high hopes for him after seeing him play in the the world cup this past summer really just a a joy to watch because of his combination of passing ability the way he shot the ball in those world games really really high iq piece who can play inside outside above the rim great in transition just a fun piece and and i thought that there was enough there to be that franz wagner type that was kind of the comp for me and moving forward with a guy like Jovic. Um, he has not shot the ball very well this year, and he is not a very good defender, where he needs to be so good on offense to, to overcome some of those defensive uh, concerns right now. 
And I'm not seeing that with the way he started his season. Statistically, he hasn't shot the ball well. He's fouled out of a couple games. He's just not aggressive and assertive as a scorer. Where do you weigh in on guys like that? Do you want to see somebody who's playing 31 minutes a game on a really good team and you know has the ability to, to impact the game in ways based on flashes from another level of competition, but he's not scoring it or shooting it really well right now? Or are you concerned by, hey, I saw these flashes, but he can't do them consistently? I think probably somewhere in the middle. Um, I think that where he's at, the flashes are good. The flashes are very encouraging. More as a basketball player, I just, especially for guys that project more as forwards than guards, it's such, you, you touched on it, it's such a high threshold that you have to hit on offense when you're as bad of a defender as he is. He's, he's not good, and he doesn't, more concerning to me, because every year there are guys that have the athletic ability that don't make their imprint on the game on the defensive end. And I would almost rather have that than Jovic, who is, he, he doesn't have the physical ability to defend on that end in Europe, let alone when he comes here. His foot speed's bad. He is a great transition player, but most of that is because it's such a contrast to his half-court style, which is completely below the rim. He really struggles to load and leap without a full like head of steam into the rim. And I, I don't even necessarily know if the things that he's good at translate directly until you're into what you're going to want him to be doing in the NBA. He's got a really cool mid-range game. He is a guy that I think has a bigger difference. But like I enjoy watching him play. I think he's really cool. And his mid-range stuff is fun to watch. But I'm not necessarily sure that the value equals up with like the skill, cool stuff that he has. I'm not so sure that I am in with the value proposition. He is starting out the season behind Rocker for me. Yeah, he because of what I saw from him in that World Cup, I had him really high initially coming into the year. And I've soured on it pretty quickly. I don't think it's because of small sample size, but it's more so because of I'm I'm still not sure how he impacts the game in the half court. I think you hit the nail on the head there. A guy like Rocco really has a lot of ways that he can do it. Now, the question is, what's the most consistent avenue to do so if he's not playing in a system that's supposed to leverage his versatility on almost every position? Uh, I don't know where that is for, for Jovic right now. I just, I don't know where he's going to be placed in the half court if the shot isn't falling. And quite frankly, it, it seems like it's a, a confidence issue with him on the three-point shooting side of things. Like he gets a lot of open looks because teams play off of him. And he almost doubts whether he should shoot those. And that's at a young age, something that's sometimes concerning. Uh, other times it leads you to believe that once he fixes the shot and the mechanics, that the confidence will grow from there and the rest of the game really flows from it. I think he's still a draftable prospect. I think he might even be able to salvage a first round pick out of how he plays to close out the year. But I mean, I've really gone from being super, super in on him to just very much wanting to, to separate and distance myself from attaching my, uh, my cart to his horses. That's fair. And, and I don't want to come out as down on him overall. I think I, I, I am very, I am a very unconfident evaluator at this stage in the draft process, right? It is very early. Basically I'm just in, in information gathering mode. I want to, I, I want to see all the flashes and see all the stuff and see how guys change over the course of the season. I try to whittle my opinions down into like, this is how I feel on a guy by draft season. Yeah. So at this point, I'm not disqualifying anybody. And at the end of the day, he's still six, nine and a really good ball handler, really good passer. And those are skills that um, the NBA is going to value. And I think that there, I think that there's almost no way he falls out of the first round just from sitting here. Obviously, anything can change. We thought BJ Boston was going to go top three at this point last year. So there's a lot of uncertainty at this time in the year, and I think that it's important to know that as an evaluator. Like we have a lot of basketball left to play, and there's probably the same amount of chance that uh, Jovic completely shuts down and falls apart that he turns it back on. And all of a sudden we're looking at him a month from now thinking, all right, he's top five guy, you know? 
a lot can happen, but as we're looking at it right now, the pieces don't add up to the player that, like you said, that we thought he was going to be coming out of the United Teams. Yeah. Yeah. And I think right now with the international class, the two guys that started the season highest on my board or guys that I wanted to pay most attention to just believing in what I'd seen or known about them coming into this year were Zosa and, and Jovic and both have disappointed wildly. And we'll talk a little bit about the draft class as a whole at the very end of the podcast and try to wrap up our thoughts on how the 2022 class might look at this stage in comparison to the past few years prior. But some disappointments from the top international names can't necessarily bode well for the, uh, the overall depth of the top tier of this class. So again, we'll, we'll hit on that a little bit later, but just before we move on to the upcoming college and, and G league seasons, wanted to, to see if there are any other international guys that are on your radar that you wanted to give a shout out to. Yeah. Just a quick name, uh, Usman Dane. He is going to be playing in the NBL for the New Zealand breakers. Um, monster pull-up shooter, really cool. Six, nine, um, efficient or not efficient yet. He, he shoots everything really poor shot selection, but he's six, nine can handle the ball. Loves that, uh, crossover back into the step back he's just a really really cool player and I think he's probably I would be surprised if at the end of this year he wasn't one of the top three international names we're talking about I don't necessarily know which of the three will fall out but I I would bet on his pull-up shooting to be the skill that um, kind of carries him into the top three and while you're watching him for the breakers this year you can check out Hugo Besson who is a six foot three pull-up shooting god. Um, probably not a first round pick. Honestly, the shooting is more valuable at six nine than this is six three. But he's a fun guard in this class and I, I think will probably be a top 45 guy. Yeah, I think that's fair. And as you're watching the New Zealand Breakers, uh, the greatest tradition in sports, those steam cannons that go off when somebody hits a three-pointer for the, for the home team there is amongst the greatest things you find. Uh, one thing I've learned from watching and, and going back and studying tape just this past summer over the last few draft classes is how good a level the, the NBL has been. I think that Giddy's early success, LaMelo Ball being every bit of the player that some of those who were, were really high on him thought he would be. Uh, if you have a lot of success running a team in the NBL, it's going to translate over pretty well to the NBA. So that's one area I'm, I'm with you. I'm excited to see how Dang works out. Yeah, Besson and Dang are going to be setting off that cannon a ton this year. Can't wait, can't wait to see that. So, uh, yeah, the international guys are the only ones that have played thus far, right? But the college season is just around the corner for us. A couple scrimmages, exhibitions all underway. Uh, we're always going to be most concerned with those one-and-done one and guys because I think they dominate the top of any draft discussion and draft class when it comes to the big names at the top. So who do we need to introduce our, our listeners and viewers to first, right? Who's the number one guy or, or kind of the top three that you might have? What's that elite tier of prospects right now in the clubhouse leader in CJ Marchesani's opinion heading into the season? Yeah, it's tight. Honestly, this is um, the last two years I've gone into the season with just clear cut um, top of the boards. Uh, Lamelo Gier, I had Lamelo like leaps and bounds above everybody else. And Last year, it was Cade and then Mobley as well. And I think I'd probably have all three of those guys at this time over anybody in this draft class. The top of this draft class is really congested. For me, the guy peeking his head over the top right now is Paolo Bancara um, for Duke. And then I have a, a cluster of about seven, eight names that you could talk me into having any of them at two. So I'll start with Paolo and let you get into your guys. But Paolo is a 6'10", ball-handling freak of nature. But guys his size should not be able to move the way that he does, should not be able to pass the way that he does. He is wicked strong. And you would think that that wicked strength would kind of correlate to him being like back to the basket, bulldoze over people at the high school level where he could bulldoze over anyone. But it's really the complete opposite. He's an awesome face-up guy quick enough to beat guys off the dribble, beautiful passer. The three balls coming along. I have hope of that. Um, some questions on the defensive end. He's one of those guys that didn't have the work ethic really on the defensive end. He didn't need it. 
he exerted a lot of energy on offense, but that's something that I'm going to want to see at Duke. And then it's kind of a 10-year-ago question, but he's kind of a tweener. Their basketball is more positionless now than ever, but I don't necessarily know if he protects the rim well enough to be a five at the NBA level. And a lot of his advantages are muted a bit by having the bigger, stronger fours in the league guard him that can chase him out on the perimeter. That being said, there's a ton to like. He has the best combination of height and vision in this class. And I think that he's going to kill it for Duke. So even though I have some questions on the defensive end, which is always a red-ish flag for me for big guys, I, I think he's the, the guy peeking his head above the top of the group at number one for me. Yeah, I think offensively, the combination of skills that he has is going to be hard to pass up on to the point where of all of the names that we might mention being in this top tier, he's probably the one that I can envision going past maybe second or third in the draft, just based on the, the size, the ball handling ability. For somebody, his his strength and kind of like he's got massive legs. And, and it's been a long time since I've seen somebody that size be able to create as much space as he does for step backs on any type of isolation move. Like he's not doing it based on length and just bullying guys, even though he has that strength, he creates a ton of space and separation. And that's, that's rare for somebody like him. Obviously the athletic flashes with put back dunks with some things that he can do in transition, like those make, make you your jaw drop. And at the end of the day, I think what we need to figure out are two things. One, how does he defend and who does he defend? And the second part is exactly how much of an isolation-driven player can he be? Um, I think he's a smart player, a good ball mover, a guy that you can play in the pick and pop in the short roll, back to basket, face-up isolation. But can he carry a team from an isolation scoring standpoint? Uh, that's one area that I'm going to want to see and feel comfortable with this year. I have Boncaro number two on my preseason board, so I think that he's firmly in that top tier. Uh, you had mentioned he's the clear-cut number one guy, and then there's a cluster for you. I kind of have a clear-cut top three, and I'm not necessarily sold on one more than the other, uh, but uh, I'll kind of steer the conversation in that way right now. Jaden Hardy is the guy that comes in number one for me, and, and that's simply because I think there are so many great shot-making guards in today's game of basketball that it's you need a guy like that to really elevate your offense. And at the end of the day, guys who have been great shot making, isolation driven, tough buckets that come out of the draft process, very rarely miss and come to the next level. They are who we think they are going, going to the NBA. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that he's going to become the model of efficiency because right now he's not. And I think any of these guys, we could nitpick their defensive effort in the high school ranks and until we get to see him this year, we won't get as good of a feel for how that ends up translating. But the one thing that I always see with Hardy is that the tie goes to the guy who can hit a 35 foot step back. Um, and those are, those are franchise changers and guys that are just cheat codes in a lot of ways, offensively, he's got more athletic talent than I think a lot of people give him credit for. And that can show itself on both ends. He's not Jalen green, right? He's not going to be that straight line bursty athlete, who's doing a fantastic job attacking the rim. But I think he can be a three-level scorer, and the consistency of which he makes tough shots from three is something that's so tantalizing to me. I'd rather open the season with him as the favorite and have to move him down and adjust because I like somebody else more. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think that I have some natural, I don't want to call them red flags because he's a phenomenal prospect, but like, you know, orange warning symbols um, with Hardy. And everything that you said is completely spot on. I think that he's the most ridiculous shooter in the class. Um, you know, not giving the, not grading on the curve of height. He's the most ridiculous shooter in the class. He is a threat as soon as he crosses the half court line and he knows. Um, I have a little bit of concern about his ability to get to the rim. I think he's going to be pressed up on by defenses, especially at the G League level to um, dare him to beat them to go into the rim and not just like always have that pressure on the step back. But even outside of that, kind of a, and it may be a blindness on my side more than anything else, but something that I've always stuck to at the top of the draft is the ability to make plays for others. 
I, I, that goes a lot into like, if you're going to be the guy and I'm going to trust you with this much on ball responsibility, I want you to be able to create for others. And it's not something that he does naturally. Um, I have a hard time telling if it's because he doesn't want to, or if it's because he doesn't see it. And I think the G league playing against grown men is going to really open up the idea of like, he's going to have to make the passes. So it's going to come down to if he can see it and if he can make them, he's not really going to have the choice to not want to because he's going to be like up on by other defenders. And the other thing is just the little bit of the age penalty, because we're obviously splitting hairs at the top of the draft, but, and he's a phenomenal prospect, but you do want to at least be aware of the fact that he's going to be 20 on draft day. So when you're watching that high school film, he's essentially the same age as Jabari Walker and Jaden Ivey and, and some of the sophomores coming into this year's class. And I think it's fair to look at his film and try to figure out how much of it you need to correct for the fact that he's essentially a year older than most of the guys he's playing against. At the top of the draft, we're picking hairs. It doesn't hurt him as a prospect, but I do think that it, it it's, I kind of want to get the background set of he should be dominating. He's older than everyone there to the extent of which he's dominating and some of the shot making that he has, you could be 27 and not be able to make those kind of shots. It's, it's a completely different story, but I do think it's at least worth noting that he is older than the majority of his competition. And that won't be the case anymore this year. Yeah. I think the G league is certainly going to expose him on the rim finishing category. Can he get there against stronger, older frankly, better athletes than he'd face in college. Can he convert on those? And when help defenses commit to him, if he proves to be a solid finisher, I agree with you. Is he going to be that willing passer that makes those, those extra passes? This is my disclaimer to say that assist numbers are not to, what to watch when it comes to this stuff, because I don't think that he's surrounded by the right level of, of talent and spacing that's going to make him pop if he ends up being that lead creator and handler. And what I keep going back to is actually a guy that was number one on my board a couple of years ago in Anthony Edwards, where the spacing at Georgia really did little justice to his off the dribble game, getting to the rim, where there were so many step backs that he ended up taking. And a large part of that conversation was framed around, does he have what it takes to continue to get to the rim? He seems to be settling for jumpers. Is he mentally dialed in enough? and understand that shot selection is going to be a really important part of his game. Now, he struggled out of the gate as a rookie, but he, man, has he looked good since turning it around and getting to the basket a little bit more. And I think so much of that has to do with NBA floor spacing and having a big man like Carl Anthony Towns that can shoot it. Georgia was one of the worst three-point shooting teams in the country when Anthony Edwards was there. I wouldn't be surprised if the G League Ignite take a major step back this year as opposed to where they were last year in terms of on-court success. And I think part of that has to do with the fact that this roster doesn't seem to mesh at quite as well on paper as last year's might have. So when it comes to Hardy and the step back and getting to the rim, I'm already throwing in that caveat of, I don't want to overly penalize him for not having clear driving lines or teammates that can knock down jumpers if he kicks to them because the spacing is going to collapse and be even different in that G League game than it will be next year for him in the NBA. Completely fair. And I think you're spot on with the G League. I think they're going to take a huge step back. Honestly, I think it's going to make us appreciate last year's guys even more. The team had more veterans on them, on the, on the G League team overall. But honestly, I think the prospects on the G League last year are a step above the guys that they're going to have this year. Scoot is probably not going to be ready to contribute at that professional level at his age, uh, who I actually really like as a prospect but I have Hardy uh, below where I had green last year. And I just think that that is a less talented and a less talented roster with less experience, which is, I, I think they're going to struggle a lot this year, but it will be good to see a guy like Hardy thrown into the fire and see how he hands. Yeah, agree. And, and the third name that we hear tossed around mostly in this top three, he's number three on my preseason board coming into things is Chet Holmgren at Gonzaga. Really, really unique offensive piece. Also another guy who's going to be 20 on draft night. So he's a little bit older than some of the others that might come up in most of these conversations. Super, super skinny. And a lot of people try to hold that against him for, is he going to be able to hold his own? Especially when you're as tall as he is at about seven foot two. 
Like there are body concerns and natural parts of this that I'm quite frankly, not qualified to kind of talk about or, or kind of speculate on, but man, is this kid tough? Man, is he skilled away from the basket? And at seven foot two, the ability to shoot, impact the game in a lot of ways from a face-up position is exactly what the NBA is kind of looking for right now. I'm not sure what position he is or defends or what the optimal usage of him is going to be on offense. I think Gonzaga and their motion scheme is going to be a little unique for a guy like him because he is a break the mold type of, of talent. And Mark Few has a, a tendency to put guys in kind of a system and continuity and have it be more motion-based. We'll see if that ends up being the case this year. But I think that there's a lot of buzz about a guy like him who frequently gets mentioned as the top overall player in this class. What are your thoughts on Chet? Yeah, Chet is unique. Perfect word for him. Um, I, I agree with what you said. I don't think he really has a defensive position in the NBA. Um, but even if he's like the world's weirdest four-ish guy in like a double big lineup, He's a phenomenal rim protector. He moves really well. He doesn't need to bang with bigs on in the post to be an impactful defender. I think no matter what, he's going to be an impactful rim defender at the next level. And you can't, he's a mismatched nightmare on the other end because he is skilled. In, he's a guard. He's a gigantic guard. Is anybody even close to his size that they guard him with? he's going to have a speed advantage on and a skill advantage on. I can't wait for Gonzaga to get going because I don't think that there's a guy that I want to see play against older competition more than Chet. I think he has consistently been the best player on every floor he's stepped on. And more than that, the most impressive physical specimen. And I want to see what his game looks like when driving lanes don't come quite as naturally. And when he gets bumped out of the, the paint on box outs and stuff like that. And I want to see what that looks like. Um, but I'm going to have a Gonzaga film on early and often and try to solve some of Chet because I don't think anybody really knows how he's going to translate, but the skills look really cool. I, I wouldn't bet against him. I know you mentioned earlier you were a big Evan Mobley guy going into the 2021 draft. Have you seen a lot of the Cleveland Cavaliers to start this year with he and, and Jared Allen playing together? I've caught two Mobley games, yes. Okay. So – one of the things that I'm watching for this year, which is going to impact a little bit about my overall upside for a guy like Holmgren, is going to be how successful a team like Cleveland is playing two seven-footers alongside each other. Because I think that Holmgren alone out there can do a lot for you offensively, and they can find ways to expose him on defense because he is slender and, and thin and not necessarily a true five. But if you put him next to another true five or somebody else that is seven feet tall and can protect the rim. Now you have two rim protectors, a ton of length, competitiveness and rebounding on the defensive end. And Holmgren, like you said, being a super big guard, that unique offensive profile is going to make him an outside the box type of guy where you can play him alongside of a, a rim runner, a, a lob catching threat and not lose a ton in, in terms of offensive dynamicism or spacing. So it may sound weird to say that a lot of what I'm thinking about Chet Holmgren and how he fits in the NBA is going to be linked to watching the Cleveland Cavaliers this year, but there's a huge part of my curiosity to see if that type of style can really thrive in, in today's NBA and provide winning formula for teams. Yeah, and I want to get out ahead of this because I agree with what you're saying, but before I go into that, I want to get out ahead of the fact that I think Mobley is a much better prospect than I think Chet is. Interesting. Um, especially defensively, but really all around. I would take Mobley over Chet in pretty much a heartbeat. That being said, I think what the Cavs are doing might be the natural progression of the league, where the two big lineup used to be like a death note. You weren't going to do any scoring. The paint was going to be clogged. And I think it may end up being like a zig while everybody else is zagging kind of thing, where the two big lineup has way more utility when both of your bigs are offensive threats. And when one of them is a perimeter threat, not just like a perimeter spot up shooting threat, but a, a legitimate perimeter threat drive to the rim, all of the same stuff so that you have the defensive defensive utility of two seven footers or two six ten, whatever it ends up being and don't lose anything on the offensive end. I think that's like a potential path for the next championship team. 
And Chet fits that mold of the guy that you want next to another bigger five. So I completely agree that Cleveland will be a good uh, process for them on the offensive end, because I think Chet is a similar-ish level offensive prospect. Um, I just happen to think Mobley is a one-of-one defensive prospect. So I, I don't necessarily have him in the same area as Chet there. I think that's fair. Um, I'm not going to weigh in on that one until I see Chet play a little bit of Gonzaga. Sure. It's just one of those areas that I'm, I'm trying to be cautious on. But I think heading into the season, they're both right neck and neck around that same type of tier of prospect for me. And I've been saying for probably a year now that the NBA is going to move to a point where threes, fours, and fives are all 6'10 or larger and interchangeable and all skilled on the perimeter to a point where that's the formula to win an NBA championship is just have a ton of size, rebounding, and versatility on the offensive end of the floor. If there's one team that might be able to build that over the next few years, I think it's Oklahoma City with the stockpile of draft picks that they have and then the size in their backcourt with guys like Giddy and Shea Gilgis-Alexander. Like the amount of length that they would have if they got a guy like Chet would be absolutely ridiculous. And, and again, I, if there's one general manager, I would bank on thinking outside the box and trying to completely revolutionize the game. It would be a guy like Sam Presti. So I, I think that's kind of the consensus top three, as far as I'm concerned right now and seeing from a lot of different places, I'm a big hardy guy just because Ty goes to the, the 30 foot step back jump shooter, but CJ, who are uh, the guys that we didn't mention that are in that tier for you that's knocking on the door yeah I'll I'll run through quick honestly and then you could just pick out who you hear that you want to talk about I'm a big AJ Griffin guy he's actually closer to my top three than Hardy is Patrick Baldwin Jr. is probably the best six eight six nine six ten whatever he actually is shooter in the world um I'm very high on Gene Montero and Caleb Houston I think Caleb Houston in this draft that is completely filled up on guys that can get their own shot and love to get to the pull-up. I think Caleb Houston is going to be the best star in his role, like wing three and D guy. He shot like 39% on, on like three threes a game or six threes a game in low minutes for Montford because they just blew everybody out. And I think he's really going to step up over the course of his freshman year. And then Jalen Duran and Jaden Hardy all, and Jabari Smith, they all deserve that honorable mention of being in that tier that might be able to make the jump that I have my eyes on for a potential number one pick because it really is wide open for me, except probably Houston doesn't make that jump, but I like him top 10. Yeah, I'll dive in on, on Baldwin uh, there. Patrick Baldwin Jr. for me is the one guy that I have pretty firmly cemented as the next one on my board right now in that number four spot. And, and frankly, you, you know, you said he's a big shooter and those guys who are elite in those areas always find a ton of value. If we're looking back at the 2018 draft, Michael Porter Jr., regardless of his injury flaws, is going to get drafted much, much, much higher. Uh, those guys are just so impactful offensively. And if the game is trending a little bit more towards size where you can get away with playing him as a three and a four, man, is he going to be good at the next level? He's a coach's son. He's got a really good feel for the game. So, so, so smooth coming off screens. Just so much to like about his offensive package and potential that for me, just I'm a sucker for shooting. And that's one of those areas that I'm going to dive into a lot more this year introspectively to try to figure out if that gets me burned more than it helps me in a lot of analyses because I was really high on a guy like Tyrell Terry. He's out of the league after a year as of right now. So, um, you know, I, I think that the, the tantalizing nature of having guys who are smooth, buttery shooters and can just be elite in that area, I might overvalue them in some regard. I don't think I'm doing that here with Baldwin just because the combination of that and size and, and how consistent he has been. Uh, but it, it is the reason why, I'm, you know, he's opening the, the year number four on my board. Yeah, I, and I will say this, and I don't want to get in your way of your introspective path <laughs> but what it is for me and why I value Baldwin so highly is it's shooting, but shooting once you hit that six, seven threshold, if you, I mean, I'm splitting here, six, five, six, 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 seven. If you have the size that he does and are a weapon level shooter, you're going to play. The league. He's going to be a rotation player in the NBA, barring a major setback injury because he's, six foot nine and maybe the best shooter in the class and that combination is that 
it provides space without sacrificing defense, which is what I think every team is looking for. Ways to give your stars room to operate without sacrificing on the defensive end. And just by the nature of being that size means you can't be picked on in in defense and bully ball. Like you're not going to be, he's not, he's got a fine movement skills. He's not going to be a sieve. He may not be the best defender in the world, but six foot nine, best shooter in the class kind of guys. Uh, sign me up. I, I agree. I have him in my very tiered board. I have him sitting fifth. So I am completely in agreement with you. I think PBJ is going to be great. His film is going to be very difficult to dissect because he's not going to be playing against all those same guys that we're seeing all these other guys play against at Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Um, but it will be interesting. I think it will be a good thought process to see how much on ball utility he does have as he reps that out and knowing that in the worst case scenario, he can scale down to a monster four man shooter. And I think that worst case scenario is what you're talking about. He doesn't have to dominate games from an athletic one-on-one -on -one creation perspective, even though he might be able to, but yeah. he doesn't have to in order to remain an elite prospect, uh, which, which I really appreciate about him. So you brought up one guy on the list that I want to pick your brain on a little bit more because he's one of the more confusing guys to me. And that's AJ Griffin who ended up at Duke right now. I had the opportunity to see him play a lot the last time he was on the floor playing in high school. I was recruiting one of his high school teammates when I was coaching at the college level. So followed their season quite, quite closely. Certainly enjoyed doing so, having him and, and R.J. Davis, who's now at North Carolina running the show at Stepanak. They were a really fun team to watch. But with Griffin, there is a little bit of injury history and concern there already, which I don't know how you feel about red flags, but I've seen a lot of guys who get those injury labels attached to them early in their careers or ahead of the draft process really thrive once they get to the NBA and, and everyone ends up kicking themselves for not taking that guy earlier. I don't know how, whether this is going to be a philosophical discussion about red flags or more so about a guy like Griffin, but tell me a little bit about why you're so high on him heading into the, the season. Yeah, the injury is scary. Uh, there's, there's no other way around it. Um, I, I do think it opens an opportunity for a discount on a guy just overall. And injuries aren't necessarily like it, they can just be a run of bad luck. You know, they're not, it's not like shooting skill. Shooting skill carries over. Injuries don't necessarily carry over. So I think that there is room for optimism there. It's good. He played in the scrimmage a couple of days ago. It's good to see him bouncing back and back on the floor. Um, to start Duke season. Yep. That being said, at the top of a draft where I'm questioning everyone's defense, I am not questioning AJ Griffin's defense. He is a monster defender with a crazy frame. He is one of the young, another one, one of the youngest guys in the class and bigger than almost every one of these other guys that we're talking about. He's just like a guy. He's built to defend. And I think he has some playmaking upside, which I really enjoy. Not the most efficient scorer, but I think that... He, I like him more in a watered down role where he is just a monster wing defender, bullies guys, sl phenomenal slasher. He's probably somebody that fits really well next to somebody that already has that primary. Um, I'm not necessarily drafting him for his primary equity. He, he has the capability to get to the pull-ups and, and all of that stuff, but really all that does is give me more confidence that he's going to be a good off ball shooter. You know, the volume, the diversity, it gives me confidence in his shot, but I don't necessarily want him taking a ton of those shots, but the monster defensive prospect that he is on top of being a positive on the offense and a, a bulldozer of a driver and a slasher really, really, I, I really like him as a prospect and he flashed some playmaking ability. You know, I'm a sucker for playmaking ability at size with the defense combination. It really like sings to the stuff that I like in a prospect. And he checks off all of those boxes. I would like to see him be a little bit more efficient. I would like to see him take better shots, but I think that's just the nature of being the best player on your team. Um, and I'm interested to see how he plays off of Paulo now that he's not the best player on this team. Yeah, a, a unique combination with those two. And especially when you sprinkle in big man, Mark Williams, who, who has done a great yeah. job setting himself apart at the end of last season and getting some buzz heading into this year. Curious to see how all three of those guys who are really athletic, cover a ton of ground. How do they work together in the half court specifically offensively? You know, I think Griffin 
and Jaden Ivy are the two guys in this draft class who I've seen play the most. Ivy obviously has a year of college under his belt, all of the film from tracking him a year ago, but also coached against him when he was in high school. Uh, Griffin, a guy who I saw a lot when he was in high school as well, just recruiting in the area and, and his teammates. Those are actually two guys that I'm least certain on at, at this point in the draft. And it's strange. It's just been so long since we've seen Griffin play high-level basketball. It's hard for me to know what his offensive projection is going to be. As a physical athlete, we know what he brings to the table in those areas. And I agree, he has a ton of potential to be a lockdown defender. But I, it's a question mark for me right now offensively, where there's a ton of ability that could easily propel him to being in that top three discussion. There's also the, the, the worries about his athleticism, how he separates the leap on his jump shot, the purity of, of his stroke in ways that might lead him to push maybe further down towards the middle to end part of the first round. And I'm just, I'm going to take that complete wait and see approach, uh, not to be a cop-out guy, but I think that's why I asked you about it. I, I want to be talked into a guy like him while reserving my right to just say, hey, I'm going to wait this one out and, uh, and see how things go this year. Yeah, and I appreciate that. I think if you're listening to this podcast, that is more of what we need, right? I don't know all of the answers. You don't know all the answers. There's a lot of basketball ahead of us. You are going to get in much more trouble by digging your feet into a, in the sand and having an opinion on a guy and sticking with that as new information comes in. I think it's way more important to acknowledge when you're not sure on a guy and wait for that information to come in and if you are sure on a guy, wait for more information to come in and being open to change your thing, change your opinion, and just constantly evaluating the evaluator. I think it makes us better basketball scouts. And really, I think it makes it a better, it makes just scouting a better place to be when everyone is open to new information. I think if you dig your feet in, in, what are we in November, November 4th, we don't know. There's a ton of basketball ahead and a ton of film left to be put out there. And if you're not open to changing your opinions that you have right now based on the new film that comes out, you're gonna be in a worse spot than an evaluator. Like you said with the international guys, you were really high on Jovic, you were really high on um, Sosa. New film came out. We should be constantly narrowing in our stance on these guys based on the new information that comes out. That's all that we can do. So I think that at this point, we should all be cop-out guys. I think it's perfectly fine to admit when I need more info. I need to see this guy in different contexts. Yep. And these are kind of preseason uh, conceptions that we have of guys based on what we've seen before while admitting that the meat and potatoes of what our final analysis is, gonna, is going to be built on is still to come. And I think the one area that, that I agree with you on and, and would love to see more of, especially in terms of online discourse, is going to be in people not just trumpeting their wins and trying to celebrate those publicly, but also talking about those, those areas that they need to improve and what they've learned from their mistakes. I don't think that there's enough of that outwardly. And I, for one, love hearing from other people in the areas that they made a mistake and they continue to get better from because they draw my attention to some of those same concepts and make me a better scout. So uh, I think that having those conversations about whether I'm patient now or, yeah, I really effed that one up. I need to learn from that in the future. Those are really the most beneficial conversations that can be had. So the one thing I want to leave everybody on, and CJ, get, get your thoughts on, is how to try to compare our preseason conception of this 2022 class with our preseason conception of the last two. The 2021 that had Cade Cunningham, Jalen Green, Jalen Suggs, Evan Mobley, Scotty Barnes, Jonathan Kaminga, Josh Giddy at that top seven. And then the 2020 draft that had Anthony Edwards, James Wiseman, LaMelo Ball, and then a, a slew of other guys afterwards. So how do you think this class stacks up with any of those? So I think I, think I mentioned this already, but as far as the very top of the draft, I think it is lacking in the top tier prospect my going into the lamello draft i had lamello leaps and bounds above going into last year i had Cade and mobley higher than anyone i would have i'm, I'm trying to make sure i remember this right. i had Cade and mobley higher than anyone i would have in this class um that being said i think this is far and away the best shooting class we've had in the last two years especially at the top 
the sh level of shop making is ridiculously high. Um, I, I think that the two years ago, I, I think it's difficult to judge the depth of a class because we're going to have a ton of breakout guys come in the next couple of weeks, months, all of that stuff. But from right now, this is not my favorite returning class ever. Um, I'm very high on Jabari Walker. Uh, Ivy is good. Ben Matherin is phenomenal. I think, I think the best thing that we can judge at the, at this point is the top of the class. And I would have the top of the class lacking behind the two with the disclaimer that if the Thompson twins are allowed into this draft class, it would probably be more on par with the two year ago class. Yeah, I think there's, for some reason, a lot of moving parts around who's going to be eligible and who isn't. And that obviously plays a factor in things. But for me right now, I thought that this was going to be a, a solid, maybe a B, B-plus type of class, where last year's I would give just an A in terms of the top-tier talent and the, the depth of franchise changers that you might be able to get in the top six, seven, or eight. Uh, 2020 wasn't overly high on in terms of top-end talent but saw a ton of depth there and thought that was the deepest draft class I've ever evaluated, even up to this point. This year, I am simultaneously disappointed out of the gate by the top end guys because of disappointments from Zosa and Jovich and not seeing a ton of really alpha game changers out there from the film that I've seen up to this point. And the depth, you mentioned the returning players not necessarily being there, very low on them not overly impressed with a ton of the international guys that have come out and played right now. And there's a good amount of one and done type of talent in here, but every single year there's one or two of them that doesn't end up making the same impact that you think they're going to maybe one or two that withdraw and come back for another year in college. That pool tends to kind of diminish itself by two, three, four, five names to the point where I'm not sure if this is going to be the deepest class ever. So uh, I think the talent in that, like four to 10 range is just fine and strong and solid for where we're going to want this draft class to be. But in no means are the top two, three, four guys better than what we've seen the last two years. And beyond that, I, I'm not thrilled about, you know, where I would be in the, the later parts of the first round in comparison to the last two years. Sure. I think one more very, very um, important thing that sticks out to me is the lack of point guard prospects almost entirely. I think Montero is very good. I think he's an underrated playmaker. But after him, I don't see anybody that really projects to be a, a lead guard in the definition of like run a team kind of way, like that playmaking and also scoring lead guard kind of player. Um, I think Montero is the best shot. Other than that, it's very, very, very high on pull-up shooting, which I think is just a sign of the times. You know, we're starting to get to the spot where the kids that are coming out of the draft they didn't grow up with lebron james they grew up with steph Curry. Yeah. you know I, it's a different it's a different generation and they're emulating what they've seen in the league the last three or four years which has put a heavy emphasis on pull-up shooting um, at all sizes and i think that i think that it's going to be a really great class for individual scoring um a couple of those guys are hopefully going to be efficient at it i don't think any of them really are yet and I think the playmaking is down. I think Paolo is a great playmaker at his size. Um, there's some guys that have flashed it that we hope to see it. But the last two classes at this point, we had Lamelo, who projected as one of those generational playmakers. For anything else that you may have thought about him at the time, um, there were questions about his defense. There were questions about his shot. No one really doubted that he was that next level playmaker. And then last year, Last year, we didn't yet know that Cade was going to turn into a pull-up shooting, pull shooting god. That was a big question mark in his game. But if nothing else, we were very sure that he was going to be able to be a lead guard playmaker. And there's nobody in this class that I think that you can give the ball to to run your team and trust that he's going to get stuff for himself and for his teammates. So, I mean, hopefully somebody emerges, but there's nobody that I would bank on yet. We've been spoiled the last two years with the amount of high field playmakers that have been in the first round of this draft. LaMelo Ball, Tyrese Halliburton, Cade Cunningham, like uh, there's so Josh Giddy, so many of these guys that can just come in right away and have the IQ in the field to playmake. You're right. That, that's something that at least at first glance and heading into the season is kind of missing from this class. So 
CJ, this has been a, a fantastic conversation. I appreciate the, the candor, the back and forth, uh, telling me a little bit more about AJ Griffin, the one guy I'm struggling to figure out most right now. Tell the people here where they can read your upcoming work, see what's going on with you, where can they follow you, plug what's going on in your life. Yeah, absolutely. First of all, thank you for having me. This was a great time. I've, uh, I've been MIA a little bit since the end of the last draft season, so it's good to get back into it. Um, you can find my stuff always at the Stepien. Um, Roll Call Sports is where I is my site where I don't write anymore, but I have a ton of guys doing some really excellent work. You can follow me at CJ Marchesani. And I hopefully have a few exciting um, projects coming out in the next month or two that everybody will be able to take part in and hopefully have some fun. So follow me there and keep an eye out. And you'll see us retweeting those blind retweets. We'll read them too, but we're retweeting them first uh, over at the Box and One Twitter account as well. So thank you all for, for listening and tuning in here today. CJ, thank you for joining us and we'll see you next week.